Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 379 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Sunday, January 16th, 2022, and Duke is once again back in the win column after a victory yesterday against NC State. We will discuss that, and we're going to go into the NBA because there is an interesting trade that happened involving uh, a member of the Brotherhood, and another member of the Brotherhood is back playing basketball, and of course, we will get to the good, the bad, and the ugly from NC State and our Player of the Week. But first, I am Donald Wine, your host for this episode. I am here in very, very cold Washington, D.C., and but I do have my friends with me to keep me warm on this podcast, Jason Evans and Sam Klein. Jason, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Is this the moment where I talk about how pissed off I am that the local Atlanta TV station didn't show the Duke-NC State game? <laughs> I, I think you should be upset you can, about that. Yeah, you can share that. So I went to watch the Duke NC State game, and uh, it was preempted so that they could show the Georgia Bulldogs championship celebration from Sanford Stadium with a packed stadium full of people and lots of confetti. And uh, they apparently thought that Georgia winning the national title and celebrating it was more important than showing a Duke basketball game. I don't know what they were thinking. So I had to watch the game on my computer. It was less than ideal, but I was able to observe a number of interesting things nonetheless. Yeah, well, I, I hate when that happens, especially when, you know, here in the local market, when something happens and it's like, yeah, that's cool. That's just not my team. So you're actually messing with my ability to watch my team play. So I get that frustration. Uh, Sam Klein, how are you today? Were you able to watch the game on ABC? Yeah, everything was normal for me. My uh, my the, the worst sort of thing that happened to me related to Duke basketball this weekend is that about five minutes before we started recording here or before we were supposed to get on, uh, I had taken all my notes and then my computer decided to blue screen. So I had to restart. So uh, this are your is your notes a, gone. Are your notes gone? No, my notes are not gone, but this is a public service announcement to autosave um, because you never know. So I was able to recover my notes, but, uh, you know, just just be careful out there when you're uh, when you're working with computers. Shout out to the Mac Notes app, because when I type on my computer, it auto-populates on my iPad and my phone, so I never lose anything. Only problem is if I delete it from one, it deletes from all, so neither here nor there. We will leave that for, for another time, but we will get into the NC State game. Of course, the Wolfpack came to Cameron Indoor Stadium yesterday, and it was a very back-and-forth affair with a lot of scoring. In the end, Duke ends up winning 88-73, to 73, the final score. We begin, as always, with the headline. And Jason, I come to you. What is your headline from this game? Pack packed. Mark Williams blocks NC State's path to victory. I like it. Sam? I think I was on a similar topic, but I also wanted to be uh, a topical with pop culture. So I went with don't look up. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> Did y'all see? Did y'all <laughs> yes. see? Don't look up. Yes, I haven't yet, but that is beautiful. So is, wait, Mark, uh, uh, Sam is is Mark the comet? <laughs> I think Mark Williams is the comet in Don't Look Up. <laughs> Mark, Mark was something yesterday. <laughs> um, my headline was not as uh, meta as as Sam's was, but uh, mine is Williams enters beast mode as Duke breaks up the Wolfpack. Another pop culture reference for some people who have seen The Hangover. Uh, but I want to get into the good, and there was a lot of good in this game. Sam, I want to go back to you, and I'm going to pick your topic for you um, because you talked about him 
actually don't wait, look hey, up hey, donald you know we, yeah. we should when we're doing headlines I, I forgot to mention we should shout out we got a headline sent to us in the mail from will oh, we Kuntis. did yeah oh this yeah was great his headline was PETA complains as mark williams curb stomps endangered wolf species i thought that was pretty good i like that one i didn't realize hey. that the wolf pack were endangered but i like I like the way they were yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. They were yesterday. I don't know if they're off the list now. Uh, So send us uh, headlines, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. I actually think that's a great use of the mailbag because uh, they're easy. So if they're they're really cool, we will will shout them out. But Sam, I want to go to the good. And like I said, I'm going to pick your topic for you because you, you mentioned it. Mark Williams was a beast yesterday. I mentioned he was a beast. Jason did not mention it in his actual thing, but he was a beast. Like, Wait, 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 I said pack. pack. No, 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 he did. He did. We all packed. Pack, pack, yes, we all had. <laughs> that was the okay. story. We all had it. So begin with Mark Williams because he w- he was the man yesterday. I am I am going to to give a a rare hot take here and say that Mark Williams is going to be a topic for me in both the good and the bad. I will tell you the bad version of it when we get there. In the good version, Mark Williams blocked eight shots yesterday, and he just terrified the crap out of NC State to the point where. Uh, their offense was moving in very strange ways. And uh, not only that, but Mark Williams was avoiding foul trouble the whole day, which meant that he was able to continue being aggressive and playing pretty much however he wanted. He almost had a triple-double yesterday. He had 19 points, 11 rebounds, and 8 blocks. The Duke record for blocks in a game is is 10 blocks by Sheldon Williams. So, so yep. Mark Williams was in striking distance of that. And by the way... It wasn't even like he played 35 minutes. He was still in his in his normal like you know mid 20s uh, minutes yesterday. Theo John came in for long stretches, and I think if you want to quibble with anything in the in in the way that the rotation was handled yesterday, it would be that Mark Williams wasn't allowed to stay in so that he could get his triple double. So Amen, it was brother. it was an it was an impressive performance from him uh, on defense with the blocks. There were a couple times where he there was one block where he had. Uh, he put the ball uh, through the floor and then into the crazy section. Um, I can't remember which of the state players that he was blocking. It was that ridiculous. was great. And then the other, the other, I think best highlight that he had on the day. He had the best assist uh, oh my on God. the day. Yes, where he had yes. he had an assist that was in transition. Trevor Keels threw him. I think what was supposed to be a lob for a dunk. Uh, as Keels was was just sort of reaching the. Uh, like a spot about halfway between the three-point line and half court, Mark Williams reacted to it, realized that he was not going to be able to dunk that basketball and bounced it behind him for Paulo Bancaro to finish the fast break with a slam. It was, I mean, that was one of the very prettiest uh, basketball plays that I have seen this season. So Mark Williams had all kinds of highlights yesterday, maybe in a way his best game of this season. And you are getting glimpses now or, or maybe like full flashes of the version of Mark Williams. I think that we envisioned early in the season when we thought, you know, the best version of Duke might be Mark Williams playing 30 minutes a night and, and getting four five, six blocks a game to go along with a lot of rebounds, a lot of points, a lot of easy baskets. So, so Sam, you mentioned several things that I want to back reference in talking about Mark Williams. First of all, the the uh, the block shot where he spiked it into the floor, uh, I think, proved that Mark Williams could be a heck of a volleyball player if he wanted to. And on that, um, you're right, it, it went into the crowd and the camera panned over to the crowd. It was where the the Sesame Street guys in the crowd are. And the Oscar the Grouch guy was waving his finger. No, no, no. Like, 
like uh like Dikembe Mutombo. That was some great stuff. That was uh I I, I was just perfect Cameron synergy. It was it was beautiful. And then I got a question on the save, the the play where Mark Williams jumps out of bounds, saves the ball to Paulo for the for the slam dunk. Do y'all really do you think for sure that Mark knew that Paulo was there? I think there's a chance. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> I, I think he I don't think he did because he kind of you could tell on the replay, he grabs the ball and kind of bounces it behind him as he's falling out of bounds. And then there was no place else crowd. he could throw it. Yeah. Yeah, he hears the crowd, but he also kind of turns around like, oh, oh, hey, yeah, dunk it. Cool. And he you could tell like he just, hey, I just have to save it and hope someone's behind me. And when he heard the roar of the crowd, he knew that, you know, someone was behind him that was able to catch the ball and, and lay it in or dunk it. Again, as a tease for the version of Mark Williams that I am going to discuss in the bad, he does not have eyes in the back of his head. Not that I expect him to have eyes in the back of his head, but he does not have eyes in the back of his head. So, no, I do not think he realized that he was throwing a perfect pass back. So the other thing I wanted to mention about all this, and, and we could talk about Mark forever. Um, I, I wanted to point out that on the season, Mark is now fourth in the country, number four in the country in block percentage. That's the percentage of field goal attempts that you block when you're on the floor. Um, and they, they exclude three pointers from this because they don't expect you to block three pointers. So if you block a three, I guess it's it's like a bonus point, you know, in, in terms of block percentage. Um, but uh, Mark blocks an outrageous. You ready for the figure, the number, the percentage of field goal attempts that Mark blocks when he's on the floor? It's sixteen point two percent. That's absurd. <laughs> That's just a silly number. Um, by the way, the guy who leads the nation in block percentage is former UNC player, former Duke recruit, Walker Kessler, who's now at Auburn, who blocks 19% of all field goal attempts when he's on the floor. That's, that's just, those are crazy kind of numbers, but I just wanted to point out, I mean, you know, again, everything Sam said about Mark, I could, uh, echo and, and, and say as well, um, it, he was fabulous. And, and I think this is a good moment to sort of segue into, the way Duke dominated in the paint. Duke won points in the paint, 58 to 38. We've been mostly talking about Mark's blocks and his defense, but, uh, you know, 19 points, 11 rebounds. Uh, Duke won the points in the paint by 20 points, and part of that was Mark, but part of that was also several other guys, including Theo John. Shout out Theo. He did yeah, great yeah. yesterday. Yeah. He, he got his first double-digit scoring game for Duke. Um, we just consistently were able to get good shots in the paint. We shot 57% from the field in the first half. And if you thought it'd be hard to duplicate that, we shot 59% from the field in the second half. And in the post-game commentary, Coach K mentioned that uh, Chris Carowell and Emil Jefferson um, are the guys who coach our big men and that they've been out with COVID and that Carowell had also been out for three weeks with knee surgery and, and that the COVID break and, and missing Carowell really had set Mark Williams, especially back a little bit, uh, especially over the break and that. Uh, just in the past few days, Carowell and Emil have been able to come back um, and, and that they've been staying extra early and staying late at practice, working with Mark and the bigs. And it really showed in this game. Duke's domination in the paint is the reason that we, you know, and, and by domination, I mean, on both ends of the floor, offense and defense. That's the primary reason that we blew state out of the, you know, we this was never that competitive a game because we controlled the paint so, so thoroughly. Going back to Mark Williams briefly and then expanding into the just overall great game we had in the paint. Mark Williams, it's it's hard. You know, there's 
ways that you could kind of keep a guy on the floor to try and get a triple double if there's points or there's rebounds or there's assists, because theoretically, those are things that the player can have control over. It's hard to do that with blocks, right? Like not only do you have to make sure the ball is in the hands of the other team, but they have to shoot it in a, you know, in a way where he's able to block it. And at a certain point, NC state was like, yeah, no, we're not going in the paint anymore because Mark Williams is just eating everything in the paint. So late in the game, I, I, I kind of understand not sitting back out for the triple double only because we basically would have to throw the ball to NC state and say, Hey, no, go to the paint and see if Mark Williams can try and block this shot. But I think overall a great game from him. And I think JC, you're right. It both his offense and defense really led to the team saying we are going to own the paint on both ends of the floor. 58 points to the paint. We've talked about points to the paint last year, this year as a point of reference, because that's where our most effective players are. Like that's where they're most effective is inside the paint, going to the basket, getting easy points. When you miss those easy points, that leads to momentum shifts on the other end. Teams go down, hit threes, and that's a five point swing. But for these guys, every single time NC State kind of showed a little bit of fight or a little bit of, uh, of moxie, it would be shut down by Mark Williams or Paulo Bancaro or Theo John in the paint. And they knew that we were getting those, we we're getting rebounds. We tied them in rebounds. But it was the fact that a lot of those that they got were long rebounds because they couldn't go in the paint and get the rebounds over Bancaro Williams or Theo John. So I want to shout all three of them out. I thought Paulo had a great game on both ends of the floor. I thought, Theo John had a great game on both ends of the floor for the time he was in there. And Mark Williams was just in straight beast mode wherever he was on the court. Again, he, he, he did it by blocking. He did it by shooting. He did it by passing, even though he didn't think it was a pass. Those are things that we want to see from Mark Williams. And, and that confidence is going to help us long-term. Sam, I do want to go back to you because uh, I want to talk about Trevor Keels. And I think there's points during a game where I thought he showed a lot of fight and also just really played well handling the ball and running the offense. Yeah. I, I've said the last couple of weeks that one of the things I find perplexing about this Duke team is that the offensive efficiency is really high, but I don't think that there's as much offensive flow as you would expect, especially given all the offensive talent on this team, be it Paulo Bancaro, be it, you know, uh, retooled Wendell Moore this season, Mark Williams being the, uh, being, you know, the, the backstop for Duke to, to be more aggressive because he can just clean up so much on the glass. And I think that this game may have been, uh, I think it was the first time this season where I felt like, okay, I kind of get where the best version of this offense comes from. And I think it comes from Trevor Keels playing point guard, which he was yesterday, I think much more intentionally than it had been at all this season. I think a lot of this season, who was bringing the ball up and who was initiating the offense. A lot of it was just based on who got the rebound and who happened to be standing uh, to, to receive the ball on the inbounds uh, when, when Duke was going on offense, that could have been Paulo Bancaro. It could have been Wendell Moore. I've actually been talking about and thinking about the last few weeks that Wendell Moore is the point guard on this team, which is part of why it was okay that Jeremy Roach went to the bench. I think now I've changed my mind. I think Trevor Keels is the point guard. He was initiating the offense a lot yesterday. He was very intentionally getting the ball and bringing it up. Not that it really matters who brings the ball across half court, but Keels was initiating the offense and in the, you know, in the rawest numbers, nine assists and just two turnovers for Keels. I thought the ball movement yesterday made a lot more sense. I thought, and I, I haven't compared this yet to previous games, but, but a lot more um, assisted 
baskets, both on the inside and the outside. The Duke offense, as Jason has pointed out, is very good at getting points in the paint and getting open three-pointers. I thought that Keels actually made that difference yesterday for Duke. And so now I'm sort of thinking, look, it's it's very cool when Wendell Moore has one of those 10-5-5 games. I think the best version of Duke, at least on the offensive end, and we can we can kind of talk about how this translates to defense. I think that Duke on the offensive end, the best version is where Trevor Keels is initiating the offense and Wendell Moore can be more of a slasher and Paulo Bancaro can be off the ball, creating for himself, getting himself into interesting positions that make defenses uncomfortable. So I was really impressed with Trevor Keels' ability to, to run the offense yesterday. I did not expect that that was going to be uh, what we were going to see from him this season. And, you know, maybe the, the best version of Trevor Keels, especially as he's going into the NBA, is as a point guard. That's a it's an interesting sort of thread to be pulling on as we get to the end of the season. Yeah, the interesting thing about Trevor Keel's play yesterday was that it came in a game where Wendell Moore didn't have his usual kind of stat stuffing game. And and essentially he, you know, Trevor Keels and Wendell Moore to some extent switched roles. So Trevor gets the nine assists, Trevor gets five steals, Trevor gets five rebounds. He only had two turnovers. Um, you know, in a game where, like, especially in the first half, I thought Paulo, Wendell, and AJ Griffin really weren't clicking. We had Trevor and and Mark Williams, and to a lesser extent, Jeremy Roach, who who created for Duke instead. Um, you know, in the first half where Duke took the lead, we had 14 assists on 19 field goals. Our ability to share the ball was really beautiful to watch. Keels had five of those assists. Jeremy Roach, by the way, in the first half had four assists. And I thought he did such a great job of finding his teammates. He may be the best pure passer on the team. He doesn't break down the D super often, but when he does, he is he is a problem for the opposition because of his ability to find his teammates when the defense come to him, comes to him. And by the way, it's worth noting, you know, we talked a lot about Jeremy Roach moving to the bench so that AJ Griffin could play and that Jeremy Roach's minutes went from 32, you know, plus to down into the 20s. Well, I did notice at the end of this game, in the final few minutes, Jeremy Roach was on the floor because Duke went small to deal with, uh, you know, NC State's press and they're trapping and NC State at that point was going to be shooting three-pointers. And so we went small and and Jeremy Roach was playing a key role in all of that. And by the way, did you guys notice the plus minus on this game? Jeremy Roach had a stellar plus 17 in just 23 minutes of play in this game. And the amazing thing is, despite playing an incredible game, you know, Mark Williams plus minus was only plus one. He had the worst plus minus on the team like that. It like I told you, you, I told you we're going to talk about him in the bad, right? Okay. Yeah. You're going to get to it. Um, but anyway, you know, bottom line is I just thought that Duke shared the ball so, so excellently in this game. Um, our assist percentage was, was way up. And, and I, I, I love, you know, going back to what Sam said, I love the fact that if if Wendell isn't going to do it, it appears Trevor's able to step into that role. I'm not sure I agree with you, Sam, that Trevor should be the point guard. I still think it it should be Wendell Moore. I, I trust him more than I do Trevor. I, trust I think Wendell what I was not- what I was thinking here is that is that it's it's possible. I don't know that right. this is the best version. Mm-hmm. I I do feel like this game was the was the the Duke offense made the most sense to me yesterday. Um, where even if even if guys weren't making the shots that they normally would, I sort of understood what the offensive game plan was more in this game than I think I have in previous in recent weeks. And despite Duke being 
fairly efficient on offense. I just don't have a sense for the team's offensive identity, and it made more sense to me yesterday. That being said, we could come back this weekend against Syracuse or or, or this week against Florida State, and Wendell Moore could have a you know a, another like near triple double game and and flip the whole narrative around again, and I could change my mind. But right. that's just uh, what and, it felt like yesterday. And, it, and it's worth noting in terms of efficiency. Trevor Keels was five of thirteen. Uh, he he's still struggling with his shot. Um, although Coach K in the post game said that he thought Trevor had Trevor Keels had his best game since the beginning of the season. Um, you know, I don't know which specific game, probably Kentucky, but you can argue that this game and the Kentucky game are the two best versions of Trevor Keels. You know, when we played Wake Forest the other day, we talked about how the first half in the first half that the offense was kind of stagnant until that last you know minute of the first half. And then in the first few minutes of the second half, we were able to move the ball around and really get the ball like flowing. And I think they continue that in this game. I think after the game, they had the on-court interview with Mark Williams. And he mentioned that after the Miami game that they had had a newfound emphasis on moving the ball around and getting everybody active. So I think you're going to see guys kind of step up in certain roles and kind of fall back at certain times, right? Wendell may be the ball handler and then he's, then it's time for the game for him to be a slasher. Maybe, you know, Trevor Keels is going to start shooting threes, but then he becomes the ball handler. Maybe Paulo is, you know, trying to find his shot on the off offside. And then he switches to being, you know, kind of an ISO mode and, and making it so the ball comes to him in the paint. Those are little things that you're going to see. And I think what's great about all these guys and how dynamic they can be is that each one of them can step up at different times. And because of that, the rest of the team kind of shifts into different roles and I think you're going to continue to see that because I think as that ball keeps distributing and keeps being moved around and, and having more efficiency, you're going to have guys that are going to have to step up at different times and they're going to have to, you know, have different roles at other times. I think that's the beauty of this offense is that you could be creative in that way. All right, Jason, wrap up the good for us. I know you want to talk about defense, especially on the perimeter. Uh, tell, tell us about what you, what you saw. Yeah, exactly. So in this game, NC State shoots five of 19 from three. That's just 26%. And you may think, wow, that's, you know, that's great that Duke held them to just 26%. Um, believe it or not, that's actually 26% is actually pretty good against Duke. Uh, since the calendar turned to 2022, gentlemen, I'm about to throw some stats at you that you're going to be like, whoa. Since the calendar turned to 2022, Duke has held their opponents to 17 out of 71 three-pointers. I'll do the math for you. That's just under 24%. I don't know how sustainable that is over the long term. I have to think that teams eventually will inch closer to 30% from three. But for the moment, Duke is among the hardest teams in the country to hit a three-pointer against. We talk a lot about efficiency. The single most efficient shot in basketball is is a three-pointer that goes in because <laughs> it's worth three, not two. And for Duke to be putting up that kind of perimeter defense is really impressive. And, and speaking of perimeter D, Terquavion Smith and Darion C, uh, uh, Seaborn of NC State, uh, I, I thought we did, even though both those guys scored, I thought we did an outstanding job on them, forcing them into awful shots. Now, they hit some of those awful shots. I, I, I've seen very few guys take as many bad shots as those guys did, uh, but they hit some of those early in the game. I was a little worried for a little while, but uh, like, like Smith was just one of nine from three. And those two guys combined to shoot more than 50% of NC state's attempts in this game. Um, and I think part of that was 
Duke was just doing a good job of, of forcing them to take poor shots. Um, they took and, 38 shots. Like, yeah. yeah, that's a lot for two players. And they only, I mean, they made 15 of them, but that's not a good efficiency rate. If you're NC State, you don't want them taking 38 shots and only making 15 combined. That's not going to get it done, especially when you're taking, there's only one basketball, right? So they're taking the ball out of the hands of other guys. So for a lot, all intents and purposes, they were the offense yesterday, and that's why they struggled. Yeah, so uh, my only point was uh, in all this stuff that that just Duke's perimeter D is is really impressive, and our ability to cut off teams from shooting three-pointers, uh, again, I don't know how sustainable it is over the long term, but at the moment, um, it it is clearly a problem for teams that need to hit three-pointers to keep up with Duke because we're just not giving up threes. I think that's a good way to segue into the bad, and Sam, you have been talking about it all episode so far. So I want to go back to you. Uh, tell us about Mark Williams, the bad version that you saw yesterday. Yeah. Jason likes to point out field goal attempts as a, as a leading indicator. And I think I can start the conversation here, which is that NC state uh, attempted 75 field goals yesterday. Duke attempted 60. You want me to put this in another way? Duke and NC State tied in the rebounding battle yesterday, despite the fact that Duke felt like it was it was really dominating in the interior. And a lot of that, I think, comes down to the way Duke is playing interior defense. If Mark Williams is able to block eight shots in a game, it turns out that that also is a lot of offensive re- or is a lot of defensive rebounds that he's not able to grab. It also leads if he's reaching to a lot of uh, easier NC State buckets um, or, or, or interior buckets that other guys were able to get. So while I love that Mark Williams is able to, to block all those shots, and I think it creates great highlights, and especially in front of the home crowd, it, it's, it's great to get everybody energized by it. Uh, there is an element of Duke's interior defense that I don't think is working right now. If Duke is giving up all those offensive rebounds to an NC State team, if they're able, if, if they're giving up some of those easy baskets, NC State didn't make all those shots, but uh, they were able to take them. We talked about uh, before this game about how uh, center Dewona for NC State is is almost never involved in, in the game. Um, I mocked him has, for his usage rate. I, I exactly. openly mocked the guy and he came out and destroyed and then, us in the first five minutes. <laughs> and then, right. And he was, he was getting, I mean, it's not like there was offense designed for him yesterday, but he was able to get a ton of cleanup uh, buckets and, and attempts yesterday. So while I, while I appreciate the aesthetics of the game yesterday for Duke on defense, it could have gone very differently if NC State was even like a, a halfway efficient offensive team um, that was able to to recover from from those mistakes that Duke was making. I wonder how much Duke is able to change that interior defensive uh, identity between now and the end of the season. Because on the one hand, it can get a lot better, and this is where I think where Duke's defense needs the most improvement. On the other hand, it looks great. Uh, if you're if you're sort of looking at it at a surface level and it's easier to celebrate guys, especially Mark Williams, when they're getting blocks. The problem was there were a lot of balls going underneath of him uh, that turned into baskets or at least easy shot attempts for NC State. So I, I think there's a, a thing here that I think is easy to fix, right? Like you have I mean, NC State had 38 points in the paint yesterday, but I think, J, uh, Sam, like you said, a lot of those were in cleanup right? Like 
missed baskets where we don't get the rebound and they quickly put it back up or dunk it or whatever. I think those are very easy fixes because again, it's about just, you know, finding, having your footwork ready and having your feet in the right position to body people out of the lane. And while we were able to do that, a lot of times the one guy who is best at doing that was Mark Williams yesterday, but when he goes up for the block, he no longer can do that. So it's dependent on those guys. And also it's dependent on our guards because the guys coming streaking in from the wing, the guards have to not worry about the shot. They find the body, put a body on that guy and then go look for the basketball. Because a lot of times those long rebounds are getting into the hands of guards. And that is the start of, you know, of a redo of their offense. And sometimes it falls into the hands of a guy who can really put it back up really quickly. So I want to um, argue that the stats were skewed in a way that make them look worse than they really were in this game. And that is that NC state, I, I know they had one possession where they had four offensive rebounds on a single possession. I recall there were one or two others where they got three offensive rebounds on a single possession. I think that that skewed those rebounding stats pretty significantly. I'm not saying that it wasn't a problem. I, I, I had defensive rebounding as something I wanted to talk about when we talked about the bad and, you know, you guys have already done most of it, but um, I, I, I also wanted to note that I think it may have just been sort of a quirk of the way this game happened that made it look a little worse than it, than it you know, really was. The, the other thing I wanted to point out really quick, um, just because Sam mentioned Duana, um, he had nine offensive rebounds. I mean, those are like Oscar Shibway kind of numbers. Nine offensive rebounds is huge. Did you guys see he had zero defensive rebounds? Do you know how hard it is to grab nine offensive rebounds and zero defensive rebounds? That takes work, my friends. That takes hard work to be in good position all the time on one end of the floor and never in good position on the other end of the floor. On that topic of positioning, and I'll, I'll bring it back to Mark Williams. I don't know how much of this I would say is like his fault, but one of the challenges that Duke had on defense is that Mark Williams puts himself in positions to get blocks. Like he's clearly hunting blocks when he's on the floor but it sometimes puts him in awkward positions well, he's to get the wait, rebound. He's supposed to. I mean, that's his he's job. A, right. He is a rim so, protector. Yeah. So the, 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 the problem is that if he is, like, I think yesterday he hunted blocks so much and the other guys around him weren't sort of reacting to that. That's what leads to NC State getting three or four offensive rebounds on a single possession is that Mark Williams is going up for blocks and he's maybe getting a step or a step and a half farther away from the basket and in the wrong position to get a rebound where if nobody else is sort of realizing that that's going on, whoever's, you know, who's ever, whoever man it is like, you know, when, if, if it's somebody that's driving on Wendell Moore and he gets around more and, and, and Williams gets in there for the shot more needs to turn around and, and focus on the glass so that, so that he can grab that rebound. It doesn't have to be Mark Williams's rebound. It just has to be the team's rebound. So some of this I think is game planning. Some of it is, is the execution of these guys and recognizing it. But I think part of it is on, is maybe on the coaching staff to get guys in, in, the right position to get those rebounds. I, I want to shift gears to uh, really quickly. I think, you know, free throws, we've talked about that a lot. They weren't great from the free throw line yesterday, but I do think, again, a lot of it can be where it's very, very crucial for guys to maintain focus when it comes to that. And I think sometimes in camera, we lose status or lose sight of that. Uh, but Jason, I want to go to you because I think you have some interesting stats about our free throws yesterday and how they related to the course of the game. Yeah. So um, Duke was 14 of 24 
uh, at the free throw line yesterday. That's 58.3%. And, and this has become a little bit of a dis- disturbing trend over recent games. Uh, against Georgia Tech, we were 26 of 40, just hit 65%. We did well against Miami, 14 of 17 against Miami. But then against Wake earlier this week, we were just 7 of 13. Over those four games... We were we hit sixty four point eight percent of our free throws, just sixty one of ninety four free throws. If you know you were to extrapolate those four games where Duke has not been shooting well over the entire season, it would put Duke in like one of the bottom five percent of all free throw shooting teams in the country. Sixty four percent. That's a you know, I, if it's one game, I'm not going to worry about it that much. Uh, but but it's starting to become a little bit of a trend, and and this is something we gotta we gotta fix, we gotta clean up because we're a team that gets to the free throw line a lot, and uh, I, so that was my stat I had on free throw shooting just over the over these recent games. It's it's something that we need to look at and and that we need to clean up. And Donald, I know you're you're a big fan of, you know, you got to hit seventy plus percent of your free throws, and Duke has been considerably short of that lately. Yeah, and you know, conversely, like last month in December and November, we were hitting. 72 to 75 percent of our free throws every game and we had some as we talked about that were in the 90s uh as far as percentage so again tracking back up and and the great thing is still this you know one of the big Duke stats is we normally make more free throws than our opposing uh or their opposition attempts and so far this year we have still done that and, and i think it's a very wide margin we just need to continue to do that because like you said jason we're going to go to the line knocking down those free baskets are going to be the difference in a game down the stretch. If we can hit 70 to 75% of our free throws at the end of the game, they won't follow us because they know those are two easy points for our team. And that's going to put games out of reach. All right, Jason, uh, once again, you get to wrap up the bad part of the category. And I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah. Um, you know, I hate to call out a guy individually, but AJ Griffin had a poor game and AJ has been so great lately. Uh, you know, over the, over Duke's last seven games coming into this game, AJ, uh, AJ was averaging 13.1 points per game. He was, he was uh, shooting like 63% from the field, 50% from three. In this game, he only gets three points, one of six from the field, just one of four from three, only a couple assists and a couple of rebounds. You know, I, I guess AJ had been playing so great. He was sort of due for a downturn, but, you know, we praised him tremendously when he's played great. And uh, this was this was not a good game for him. And then I did want to note one last thing. Uh, Coach K in the postgame said that Duke is still not in good shape, good condition. Um, he said we're not playing with the same pace we were earlier this year. We're not pushing the ball quite as much as we used to. Um, he said we're getting there, um, but but that it'll take a little bit longer for us to to you know fully get back to what we were before the COVID break. Um, K said he was really excited for that because. He sees AJ Griffin as sort of an added element that we didn't have when we were in good condition. Um, and uh, he specifically said that Wendell Moore is a guy who's really struggled to get his conditioning all the way back. I think that probably means that Wendell had a, had a worse bout of COVID than some of the other guys in the team. Um, but, but that also explains a little bit of Wendell's struggles lately. You know, Wendell has not been himself the past few games, um, but coach K says he's, he's getting his way back. And I, I, I did just want to, you know, point out, uh, you know, that, that coach K says we're, it's still not a hundred percent, which is pretty encouraging considering the team's playing fairly well anyway. Yeah. And that's something that's going to be looked at. I, I do want to end with a positive note, Jason, you mentioned it. Uh, we heard from coach K because coach K was back on the bench. So it was good to see him back. I know he 
uh, missed the game midweek due to uh, a non-COVID illness. Uh, but we're glad to see that he's uh, that he's fine and he's back on the bench. And, and Jason, uh, yesterday was your birthday as well. So hopefully the big one, the big fifth, 55, was it? Uh, is a it good, was 5-5 five, five. for you. It ended with a Duke victory. Can't save Sam about my birthday. Duke, we'll talk about that later. Uh, but that'll end it for the NC State portion of this pod. We will take a quick break on the other side. We have NBA to discuss. Big trade. Stick around. See who's going where. All right, guys, we are back and we wanted to jump into the NBA because uh, we had a member of the Brotherhood change locations uh, and it was a big kind of trade, uh, an interesting trade involving uh, the New York Knicks. They are bringing in Cam Reddish. He was traded to the Knicks the other day. Uh, he now joins R.J. Barrett at Madison Square Garden and uh, a return of uh, two of the three guys from the class of 2019 uh, that so that we all know and love. Jason, he leaves your Atlanta Hawks, but I think there are some uh, rumors swirling about why this trade was made and also what it could mean for other members of that uh, heralded recruiting class that went to Duke and played so well together. What are you hearing down in Atlanta? So I will tell you that uh, I know a lot of Hawks fans, as people may know, I, I share season tickets with a few friends and, and I have a, uh, a bunch of other friends of mine who, who pay a lot of attention to the Atlanta Hawks and almost to a man, every one of them were um, uh, upset that Cam got traded, um, but really upset at, at what the Hawks got in return for him. Uh, the reality is uh, Kevin Knox, uh, was traded. He's not a player who who matters. He's not going to be in the rotation for the Hawks. He wasn't in the rotation for the Knicks. What the Hawks really got for Cam was a very, very protected first round draft pick um, that actually uh, comes from the Charlotte Hornets. Um, I won't get into all the protections on it, but there's a fairly decent chance that it it actually doesn't ever end up becoming a first round pick. It depends on how well Charlotte plays and, and where their first round pick would fall. Um, there's a chance that this ends up becoming two second round picks in just a few years. And Hawks fans were really upset that we didn't get more for Cam Reddish because we feel like he's been a, 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 a pretty valuable player for the team and, and a pretty successful player. And, you know, we drafted him 10th to have now traded him for a draft pick, which, you know, is going to go in the teens or later. It, 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 it's surprising. But um, as I've done a little bit of digging and talked to a few people who maybe know a few little things, I've come up, I've heard some different things. One is everybody in the NBA, and by everybody, I mean, you know, NBA GMs knew that the Hawks probably had to trade Cam Reddish. The Hawks are in a salary cap situation. Uh, they've paid a lot of money for guys who are playing on the, on the perimeter, and they, they just couldn't afford to keep Cam. Cam is extension eligible after this season. They didn't have to pay him now, but it was either after this season or after next season. And, and, and it just doesn't really fit into what what Cam was going to demand just wasn't going to fit into what the Atlanta Hawks could could afford to pay. So because everybody in the league knew the Hawks had to trade him, it was tough to get someone to offer the Hawks very much in return. The other stuff I've heard, and again, this is all this is rumor and innuendo, and I almost hesitate to say it, but there there's a lot of talk that Cam was becoming a problem in the Hawks locker room, that he wanted a bigger role on the team. Um, uh, DeAndre Hunter. Uh, it just came back from, from being out with an injury and, and that was going to eat into Cam Reddish's playing time. They sort of share the same position. 
And, and there's a lot of belief out there that the Hawks felt like they had to move on from Cam Reddish because he was going to be even more upset um, with DeAndre Hunter taking more of his time and that he really wanted to be uh, a bigger and bigger player. I know the New York Knicks are very excited to get him. I know Knicks fans as well uh, who, who uh, are thrilled with the trade, think that the Knicks – and by the way, everyone, you know, all the Sports Illustrated and The Athletic, everybody who grades these trades, they're all giving the Knicks an A or an A-plus – you know, on this trade because they, they think Cam Reddish can be a very valuable piece for the New York Knicks. Um, and, and him playing next to RJ Barrett has people excited. RJ, by the way, has been just on fire lately. He's like scoring 30 points a game lately. Yeah. RJ has been really playing great. And, and the Knicks, I think are very excited to have Cam Reddish to, to, uh, you know, help out on their perimeter because they've struggled on the perimeter. I, I love that they're playing together uh, again. I feel like from that, uh, RJ Zion Cam season at Duke, it was somewhat awkward because those guys are all of sort of similar size. They have different games, but there was something awkward about the fact that they that they overlapped a little bit too much. I actually think that that RJ Barrett and Cam Reddish complement each other really well at both ends of the court, and so th- this could be a you know a, as as well as RJ Barrett has been playing in recent weeks. This might be an accelerant to uh to his development and and his output on the floor so you know i'm not sure that that cam is a is a star in the making the way that it seems rj barrett is but this might be uh tide lifting all boats for for both of them and if cam can be a consistent shooter from the perimeter uh the knicks are really streaky in that regard and some days they have it some days they don't but if he's able to be that consistent guy that can hit you know two or three threes a game and just be very consistent shooting at perimeter that's just going to draw one more guy out of there. And then, you know, guys like Obi Top and RJ Barrett, you know, Julius Randle can go inside and do what they do. So uh, I think the Knicks are very excited about that possibility. I think also in the NBA, we have to talk about Kyrie Irving come returning to the Knicks. He is still a part-time player. Nets, still the Nets. I'm not sorry the to the Nets, uh, yeah. not the Knicks, Brooklyn Nets um, staying in New York. Uh, the, the, the New York Vax mandate requires that he can't still play. Uh, at Barclays Center, but he can play on the road and the, the Nets finally brought him back as a part-time player. And honestly, he's been playing very well on the road. And, you know, the the big three uh, of him, Harden and Kevin Durant are now officially together, at least on a part-time basis. I, I see this being very interesting because we're talking about this now, but the Nets are one of the best teams in the NBA. And they are almost certainly going to be in the playoffs. This is where it's going to be an issue for the Nets. Do they keep them around for the playoffs? Do they just have them as a part-time player? What if, I mean, and with the Nets, they're going to have games five, game seven at home. Are they risking leaving him at home, so to speak, when in, in not, not being able to play him in those do or die moments in the playoffs? That's going to be an interesting question. It also will be interesting to see if they kind of try to convince him to get a shot so that he would be able to play at home during the playoffs. The argument to convince him to get a shot has now been thrown out the window because he's able to play in these road games. And, and he, you know, he probably feels pretty vindicated in, in, in regards to that. Uh, There are a lot of folks out there, you know, people who watch the NBA who now say you got to make the Brooklyn Nets the favorite for the NBA title this year. I mean, they, they are, they were certainly, like you said, Donald, they were one of the teams that was right in there uh, even before this. Uh, It feels like now you make them the favorite uh, because 
you know, in the in the playoffs, the really difficult thing is winning on the road. And and suddenly the Nets have this extra added element that they're going to have when they play road games. Now, on the other hand, it makes them maybe a little more <clears throat> a little more vulnerable when they play games at home. Uh, but but they've been playing games at home all year and been, have been pretty successful at it. Uh, I, I, you know, it's, it, it'll be real interesting to see if they're able to convince Kyrie, if they're able to figure out a way to get Kyrie to play, uh, all the time for them, because if he does, it, it, it's hard to pick anybody, but the Nets to win the title. I think, I, I think that last sentence is what is correct here. Um, I don't think they are the favorite because again, they have a player that they can't utilize at home. And in, as of right now, in every playoff series that they will have, they will have more games at home than they will on the road. I think it's still. Honestly, I think it's still the uh, Golden State Warriors because they also got a guy back in Clay Thompson. Right. And Clay has been destroying everybody since he got back. He has been waiting two and a half years to play basketball and he is making up for lost time very quickly. So, Boy, can, uh, can you imagine a game seven? I mean, Donald, you pointed this out, but just thinking about it, like a game seven for the, for the Brooklyn Nets at home where Kyrie has to sit and watch it. I mean, Maybe they will convince him to get vaccinated. Man, that's that's a lot to sit down. That's a lot to sit out. Hey, the the net the Washington Wizards were able to do it with Bradley Beal because DC just had a vax mandate start yesterday. And three weeks ago, he started his process of getting shots so that he would be able to play at home because he knew the Wizards are also, you know, doing very well this season. And he wants to be a part of that playoff run and he does not want to miss games. So he has been a guy that's saying, yes, if, if there is a vax mandate, I will do it so that I can help my team win. It'll be interesting. I wouldn't to see be surprised if, they, if, if the more next vaccine game. mandates are coming though. Like, like sort of one by one, Kyrie's going to get, going to get iced out of, of playing in certain cities. Boston's I'm up in Boston, Boston's uh, indoor vaccine mandate went into effect yesterday. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and the Celtics are not currently in the playoffs, but are certainly in contention for it. There are a few other cities uh, in in the Eastern Conference that I could see going for vaccine mandates. Obviously, the the Nets and the Knicks uh, are subject to to New York City, so um, be interesting to see how that develops. Well, uh, and, and I don't. Donald already said Washington's got it, uh, yep. and they're in the they're in the number nine spot. You know, Boston um, has it. Toronto. Uh, I don't think you can enter Canada right now. I right. don't know what the exact ruling is, but. Uh, that is correct. I don't think he can play in Toronto. Yeah. So, and, and we're talking about, and you teams. can't play in, you can't play in San Francisco. So if there is a finals between the two favorites, he cannot play in any game. Well, I was thinking, I mean, it's pretty darn likely that the Nets first round opponent would be one of Toronto, Washington, New York, the Celtics. I mean, those are the teams right in there to potentially be the, the Nets first round opponent. And, and if they are, then Kyrie would have to sit the entire first round. Alternatively, if it's Charlotte, they're in great shape. Yeah. <laughs> right is what it is but yeah we will continue to see how that works out i do want to end uh before we get to player of the week jason we had a big victory yesterday by a friend of the podcast a, a member of the brotherhood tell us about northwestern and chris collins yeah i just wanted to quickly shout out chris collins uh, who's doing a great job at northwestern this year there were not high expectations for this team we mentioned a few weeks ago when we were doing a little bit of a bracketology deep dive that uh that folks are saying that Northwestern is on the bubble and has a real chance to make the NCAA tournament. They, they greatly improved those chances yesterday when they defeated Michigan State, one of the top teams in the Big Ten. Michigan State was ranked 10th at the time. Um, I, think, I think I read someplace that Northwestern, it may have been Northwestern's first win at Michigan State like since 
like in 15 years or something crazy like that. It's been a long, long time. And they play at Michigan State every year or, pre- or pretty close to it. Um, so uh, yeah, just a shout out to Chris Collins, who's, uh, you know, again, like I said, just he's in the running for Big Ten Coach of the Year for the job he's doing at Northwestern. And they're very much in the thick of the race in the Big Ten. Yeah, it was a great win yesterday for him. Congratulations to him and Northwestern on their big win at the Breslin Center. Okay, guys, we're going to wrap up with Player of the Week. Uh, we had two games this week that are under consideration, the Wake Forest game and the NC State game. So, Sam, who do you have for Player of the Week? I feel like this was a, a weird week for Duke where I don't know that any one of Duke's players stands out in both games, um, but I think the guy who comes closest is Paulo Bancaro. He, he had a really nice game yesterday against NC State, but against Wake Forest, I just think he was a little bit more inefficient and and maybe not, you know, obviously he's scoring a lot of points and grabbing, like he's putting up the, he's putting up kind of the, the baseline numbers, but on an efficiency standpoint, I'm not sure that it was there. That being said, everybody else sort of had at least one kind of down game in a week where, where Duke had two, you know, fairly, uh, fairly easy victories. I'm going to give it to Paulo Bancaro. I, I seriously considered Paulo and, and I agree with Sam. This was a really tough week to, to figure it out. Like AJ Griffin was great against wake and bad against NC state. Mark Williams was great against NC state and bad against wake. I, I, I think Paulo's an easy choice. I went with Trevor Keels though. Uh, I thought Keels was, you know, outstanding against NC state um, with the assists uh, with the steals and, and he had a, he had a pretty nice game uh, against wake forest as well. Um, uh, he, he had four assists in that game. He had 11 points. He was reasonably efficient. Um, and his plus minus this week was really off the chart. Trevor kills had a plus 27 against wake forest. And then in the game against NC state, Trevor kills was plus 15. Um, he led the team against wake. He was second on the team against NC state. So he combined for a plus minus of plus 42, you put up a plus 42, gentlemen, you're in the conversation for Trip Player of the Week. And for me, Trevor Keels gets it. Uh, I'm glad you shouted him out, uh, but I think I'm going with Sam here. Uh, Paul Bancaro, like on the offensive end, dynamite in both games, 46 points combined, 13 rebounds combined. He was a force and really helped contribute to uh, our paint presence. And really, you know, against Wake Forest, the second half, he, he took over and really led the charge for our team down the stretch and against uh, NC State. I think he just had a solid game all the way around. We may not have talked about him that much, but that doesn't diminish the impact that I think he had yesterday uh, on our team. So I'm going to give it to Paulo Bancaro as well. On one other player on, on Duke's roster that I want to shout out, Jeremy Roach was sent to the bench after Duke was playing the same starting lineup all season. And I think there is a, a, a world where Jeremy Roach somewhat justifiably feels pretty slighted by the fact that the that the lineup has has changed and not in his favor that that to get to make room for AJ Griffin he's the guy that needs to suffer the most coming into this season Rocha I assume was very excited about the fact that he was going to be paired in the backcourt with his former running mate Trevor Keels and Keels has really taken a lot of the spotlight from Roach this season um, I have pointed out in this game this most recent game that Keels was the one playing point guard that being said, we talked about in the recap from the state game how much Jeremy Roach contributed off the bench. And so I do want to give him huge props for accepting the the new role and for seeming to thrive in it. He's He may not be one of Duke's five best players, but he is a key piece for Duke to be successful, you know, heading into the postseason. He's If he's not one of Duke's five best players, he's definitely one of Duke's seven best players, which means he's 
he's essential to the team here. And, you know, at least from the outside, it seems like he's had a great attitude about this. So I'm, I'm sure behind the scenes, he, he may feel a little upset by it, but he's doing a great job of, of being a team player here. And I think he deserves credit for that. I agree with that. You know, I, I really glad you shouted him out. You know, most guys take that as a demotion. He took it as a new role, right. And a new, a new opportunity for him. So, and he made the most of it this week. I do wonder if, if this is a place where Wendell Moore has had a positive effect on, on the team and the psyche, because Moore has been through some of his own ups and downs in terms of expectations, being the guy, not being the guy. But as a junior, he is, he's clearly in a role that that's much bigger than he's been in prior years and would not have reached this point if he didn't have a good attitude about it. Jeremy Roach might be on a similar track. Absolutely. And it's good to have that guy that you can literally turn to uh, in the locker room and say, how do you, you know, how do you go through something like this? So uh, I'm glad you shot that out. I think all the uh, player of the week uh, honors were well-deserved, but that will do it for episode 379 of the Duke basketball report podcast. Listen, folks, we, we have the holiday coming up. We have a game coming up on Tuesday. We will be back very, very soon to talk about FSU and preview that game on Tuesday night. But for now, For Jason Evans and for Sam Klein, I am Donald Wine. This was episode 379. Make sure you write, subscribe, like, subscribe, rate, review, write us, email us, do everything to contact us. And we love hearing from you. But for now, Duke Band, take us home.